5-4-3-2-1 You are listening to the Mango Tea Podcast with Jody and DK. We are a non-partisan Jamaican and Caribbean podcast for the diaspora. We give you tea with a slice of mango mm. and information on current events, politics and politics, finance, sports, and culture. We created this podcast for the diaspora to know what's happening in the Caribbean beyond the gossip. Everyone, I'd like to welcome you to a brand new episode of Mango Tea Podcast. Today, it's just me, unfortunately, Dakari isn't able to make it. Today, we have a very illustrious guest with us. Um, we we had a little bit of snafu in our last episode. We talked about we will not compromise the quality of our podcast by spewing out bad audio. And we had an ama- we had literally the most amazing interview <laughs> we've had all year. Um, with this amazing woman and the audio decided that it was not going to let us live and be happy but by the graces of the scheduling gods we are back with professor celine esselion hi professor hi i'm cecile actually i see i see i keep messing up your name absolutely terrible but i i've gotten better (laughs) (laughs) Um, So everyone, uh, Professor Esselion is amazing. She is a Haitian professor. And I I don't mean she was born, she's Haitian, she's all that. She teaches at the university level about Haiti. She has a book, she has several books uh, to note, but she has a book out, it's called Haitian Creole Phrasebook, Essential Expressions for Communicating in Haiti. She is currently the chair of the Department of Interdisciplinary Studies at Kennesaw State University. And formerly, she used to be the interim chair of, for the Department of African and African American Studies at Kansas State University. And she was also the associate director for the Center of Latin American and Caribbean Studies and the director of the Institute of Haitian Studies at KSU. My goodness. My goodness. So I've done my little like <laughs> Wikipedia Google search backgrounder. Can you tell our audience more about you, Professor? <laughs> well, um, thank you, Judy. I appreciate the introduction. Just a short correction. I was at um University of Kansas, which is in Lawrence, Kansas, and they have a, a big rivalry between Ken, Kansas, Kansas State University and University of Kansas. So I don't want to mess that. <laughs> I thought there was I thought there was just one university. Wow. <laughs> no, there's a KSU, K, um, Kansas State University, and there's KU University of Kansas, which is in yeah. Lawrence, and mm-hmm. KU is the big basketball place. And KSU is the big football. So, you know, they are, they are rivals. <laughs> but I won't hold that against you. No worries. <laughs> We're good. Um, so I'm Cécile Axilien. I, I was born in Haiti and I lived there until I was about 11 years old. Then um, I moved, to, uh, I moved uh, to New Jersey and actually grew up in Newark, New Jersey. And the last time we talked about um, uh, the city, I used to love going to Brooklyn, you know, hanging out, Flatbush Avenue. And it was just, it was just home. And this was um, in the late 80s and early 90s. So you were born and raised in Haiti and then you migrated to the States, right? Yes. 
So when, what age did you migrate over? Um, I was 11. Okay. And what made you decide to focus your, your tertiary studies on Haiti? Why not something else? You know, it's, it's an interesting question. I have to say, in many ways, Haiti chose me. Initially in college, as an undergrad, I was a bio major, believe it or not. I'm, I'm three credits away from a minor in chemistry. And um, what did it for me, I hated the sight of blood. I remember going on one of those programs um, over the summer, and I almost passed out. <laughs> you know, it, it was the idea was to get um, students to, to see what it was like medical school. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I can't remember the person's name, but I can see this was over 25 years ago. I can see a bit of their faces um, saying, you may want to rethink career. <laughs> so um, I, I was taking literature courses and I remember in world literature, I, one of the first book I read was um, by, uh, in translation, this Egyptian writer. And I still remember my world literature professor. I fell in love with literature. So I changed. Um, I think in my like, junior year, I changed from um, biology to, to literature. And um, growing up in New Jersey at that time, it was exciting because there was um, a large Haitian community. I mean, there still is, but that's where I learned how to write in Creole. There was, um, I think, an organization, it was called Caribbean Haitian Council, if I recall correctly. And there were so many activities. I was really ingrained in my culture. And I remember my brother who, um, you know, he was, he's older than me. He was always talking about Haiti, talking about literature. So in some ways, um, changing and studying um, French literature was a way to learn about Haitian literature because many writers, of course, write um, in French, uh, many Haitian writers. And um, fast forward, I started taking courses. I went to France for a year and did my um, year abroad instead of my junior year, it became my senior year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was living in France when I really discovered what will become my passion, which is learning about the former French colonies. And in many ways that demystified um, France for me because growing up in Haiti in a way a former colony. And I remember being in school when I was not allowed, I was not allowed to speak Creole um, in school. It was considered disrespectful. Um, in school, you will actually get punished. Again, this was in the um, late 70s, uh, early 80s. Yeah. And so um, learning about the former French colonies, I fell in love with African literature. I fell in love with you know, African food. And it was a way for me to come back home. And in a way, the rest is history, as they say. Haiti just keep choosing me. I mean, I've worked on... Um, other topics. I'm really a literary and cultural studies scholar. So I work on French West Africa and the Caribbean. I've taught courses on the Dominican Republic, Cuba, and my courses have included other islands in the Caribbean, um, uh, Jamaica, um, for instance, but Haiti remains at the center of my work. Yeah. 
absolutely amazing. And you did your uh, your PhD studies in Louisiana as well, too, which has a huge uh, Creole population as well, correct? Yes. Um, so uh, again, um, being in being in Louisiana and especially New Orleans, you feel as if you're in Haiti. I mean, I t- I tell people if I get a job today, tomorrow, I will move to, to New Orleans in spite of the hurricanes and everything. Yeah. The colors, you know, the, the culture, the architecture, the food, the language. There's so much connection, which makes sense because what most people do not know is that um, uh, there were a, a large wave of um, uh, Haitians, well, at the time it was Saint-Domingue, before Haiti's independence, when the revolt started as early as 1791 and moving to the early 19th century, that moved to, to Louisiana. So the connections are there. You have people with last names such as Batsis, a very common Haitian last name. And um, you see, and what's interesting is many people from New Orleans are very proud to say that they have Haitian roots which is something that we don't find in many other places in the U.S. Growing up, people just didn't want to be um, associated with Haiti. I remember in high school, it was, oh, you know, um, if you Haitian, um, homophobia, like it was all these, um, it, it was complete stereotypes when it came to, to, to Haiti. Mm-hmm. So... That's interesting because we had um, we had our uh, podcast friends um, in our last episode. Um, the ladies from Growing Up Pringlish, they are Haitian Americans from Nashville, and they were telling us about growing up in Nash. One, growing up in Nashville. Two, being black in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Three, being mm-hmm. Haitians in Nashville, and then four being immigrants in a sanctuary city. So all of this combined into one. So my, my question is, why, thinking from a lar- larger hindsight, why, the, why not own being Haitian? Why do, why do, peop- why do people not own um, or embrace their, um, their Haitian heritage? Well, I mean, I, I think it's fear, right? When, when there's a lack of knowledge and confusion, that creates fear. I mean, I remember being in high school and many kids will pretend to be Jamaican so that they will not get beat up. The reality is there is, there, there is this like um, hatred of oneself. Many people who do not know their history and you have to think about it. You are a child, you weren't asked to come to the U.S., and I'm very sensitive to, to um, children who have come to other spaces. People just assume, oh, you know, you're going to have a better life and all that. But from a child's perspective, you just see yourself as, oh, I miss my friends. My friends, I'm leaving my friends. I'm leaving everything that I know. You come to this country, you don't speak the language, you have people who look like you, in my case, for instance, and I'm not saying my history is not necessarily um, the, that, that of everybody else, but it is that of, me, of, other, of many other Haitians, especially of my generation. Um, and then you feel uh, disempowered and displaced. And so you're trying to belong. And it's painful when people who look like you, whether African-Americans, Jamaican, 
um, um, different um, Africans from different countries on the African continent. And you seen as less than, and people see, oh, those weird people who maybe speak French or speak Creole, that language that people don't understand. So there's a lot of hatred and misunderstanding about what Haiti is um, as the first Black Republic. And I'm not one to think we should all just live in past glory. In fact, um, right now, Haiti, there's a major strike going on right now. There's been constant kidnapping. The country really is in bad shape. I'm not going to pretend it isn't. But the reality is there's a history that all Blacks should be proud of because we were the first successful Black um, uh, uh, independent country. This is not to say that other um, people didn't revolt. Like they were always revolt whenever there was slavery because it's something unnatural being enslaved. Enslaved people were always revolting, but this is one of the well-known um, slave revolt that, that people that that people um that is documented and that inspire other countries for instance the u.s spent over 50 years before it recognized haiti as an independent country because it will have been forced to deal with slavery in its own backyard and as we know slavery was very profitable and many institutions today as we know are reckoning with the fact that we are physically on slave um, land. And I remember when I was a student at Tulane, we used to say, oh yeah, the plantation. And many of my colleagues would refer to many yeah. of our universities as plantation, mm-hmm. both physically yeah. um, and, and sometimes more um, intellectually, because what they do is there's a lot of talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, yet you don't have enough people of color representing um, this diversity, equity, and inclusion that universities claim to care about. As an example, at my current university, there are about close to 50% student of color. And the faculty does not represent that. And in my College of Humanities and Social Sciences, I am the only chair of color out of 13 chairs. And I'm in Georgia. I'm about 45 minutes from Atlanta. Uh, but you know what you brought up? You you brought up a great point that Haiti was the it is the first independent Black country in the world, um, it, and it, we're in Black History Month. And people don't know Haiti has a lot of great moments in not just Black history and history. It, Haiti, uh, ha- the Haitian um, football team. I learned this the other day was it was the first football team from the Caribbean to qualify for the World Cup in mm-hmm. 1979 and that was amazing and then another thing i learned and it this is random i was doing research for the podcast at three o'clock in the morning and i was looking i, I think i was looking up like female leaders female political leaders mm-hmm. and i stumbled on that there was a haiti had one of the first female head of government in the caribbean the the first there's no jamaica trinidad diana it was Haiti. Uh, can you give us a little breakdown of how that came about, this monumental um, occasion? Yeah. I mean, Erta Pascal Puyo, she was um, the first and sadly the only 
um, president of Haiti. She was um, an acting president or provisional for just uh, less than a year from the early 90s, uh, I believe 1990 to 1991. And she really um, was, uh, she, I mean, she was a judge and she, she had been a judge in many federal courts in the um, late 70s. And she was the first woman justice in the Supreme Court. And so uh, through her time when there were so many, while she was chief of justice, at some point when she was made president, she was the one responsible to organize um, general election. Mm-hmm. And um, she's remembered as someone who for the first time brought really not only violence-free election, but where you had really a large majority, over 60%. And that is historical in Haiti's, you know, for, for Haiti. Yeah. And no matter what happened, what one believe about Aristide, that's a whole other podcast, but he was um, one of the few presidents in Haiti's history to have gotten a majority vote. And this was under her leadership, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. And that's, that's incredible. And oftentimes people forget about, about her. You know, it's, it's so interesting too, because like, this is me doing research. This is me online with insomnia at three o'clock in the morning. And I <laughs> this. And I reached out to a lot of, I reached out to my, um, a few of my Haitian friends and was like, wait, why did you, why did you guys have this? awesome snippet of knowledge and never share this with me because most of my friends know I'm a lover of history mm-hmm. I, I majored in history in college and they were like oh I didn't know that there was a female president in Haiti and I was like well ask your parents and some of mm-hmm. their parents didn't know either and I was just like it's it's almost like a forced um erasure of of history of Haitian history not even of Haitian history because Haitian history is black history it's a forced mm-hmm. erasure of, of black history and then to go down those lines too, it's what we've noticed across the region is that we're not educated about um, or, or revolutionaries or troublemakers of history. Mm-hmm. Um, so in addition to this, uh, Walter Rodney, that I personally, I never learned about Walter Rodney until my late 20s. Dakari mm-hmm. didn't learn about Walter Rodney until last year when I brought it up. Eric Bishop. So there's a there's mm-hmm. a complete erasure of Black history. Have there been any other, I would say, Black influ Black Haitian influencers that have been erased by history? That oh, you- where do we start? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are so so many. The the thing is, a lot of time we don't think about. We don't think about um, who is writing history, right? Mm-hmm. There's a really interesting film um, by um, uh, Arnold Antonet. I think it's called um, Huit Femmes d'Exception um, or something like that. And it, it features some, um, or oh, Six Femmes d'Exception, um, 
uh, d'exception, huit ou six, meaning um, seven, seven six, I'm sorry, six extraordinary women. And what a lot of people do not know, there, we, there are so many incredible women who have played major role from, from writers um, to, to um, teachers, like from even the, the Haitian League of Women, you know, who really, uh, who really are the one who has done work and continue and continue to really make a difference in, in Haitian life, but we don't hear about them. We don't hear, for instance, about Imran de Pradzin. Um, we don't hear about um, Viviane Gauthier, um, Odette Roy Fonbrun. Like, there are so many, so many from dancers to, to educators, who have done amazing work, who are the backbone. And recently, um, I watched there's a young filmmaker who has this film called um, Madame Sarah. I'm going to put the title for you in the chat. And Madame Sarah are like these, these women who they are, you can, you can almost say they are the queen of the marketplace. They are up for three, four o'clock in the morning, they go and buy food from the farmers and they go, they travel all over, especially in major cities to go sell that food. Without them, Haiti's economy will crumble. Yet the government doesn't protect them. The government doesn't like, because right now when there's insecurity, sometimes even at the borders, the police themselves will, will participate and take their money and, and rape them. People don't think about the incredible um, work and the power of this Madame Sarah. You're talking about women who are selling, um, not just like having a little um, boutique, but they are buying from farmers and selling. And without them, the farmers will keep their goods. And yet we don't protect them. Yet the formal economy doesn't even think about them because we live in a very gender society. We live in a very um, rather patriarchal society. Um, and women are not giving their proper places, yet you have so many Haitian singers glorifying the woman. It's like, and for me, until you create, until you have education for girls, because when we are in situation of having to choose, usually even if the girl is shown as having, as being more interested and doing better, it is the male um, child that is sent to school. So we have to look at education, our education policies. We have to look at um, giving women um, economic independence. So yeah. many women throughout the Caribbean, not just Haiti, are heads of household. They are the ones who take care of their family, not just their children, but their extended family. Right now, as we talk about being in COVID time, a lot of time, it is the women who are taking care of, of their families. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the larger extended family. And yet, they are not paid 
due respect. And if we were to go into history, there are so many incredible women, um, uh, Marie-Jeanne Lamartinière, women who fought at the, at, um, at, at the um, Battle of Vertier, one of the most important battles. We don't hear uh, um, about these women. And even before, you know, during the time of um, uh, the, the Spanish came, we have Queen Anacaona, mm -hmm. who is recognized. These are people we never hear about them, to name but a few. We have Zabet. Zabet was a Maroon. She used to go into hiding. Even Maroon community, I mean, from Jamaica, we hear about um, Nanny de Maroon, but we don't hear, for instance, in Guadeloupe, French-speaking um, Caribbean, we don't hear about the Mulatres Solitude. So women have always been in history, but then we have to beg the question, who was writing the books, you know? Yeah. And, and so um, whomever was writing the books, they got to decide, they got to decide, um, they got to decide whom to put in the story. There's an African proverb. Sometimes it has been attributed to um, Ghana, sometimes Zimbabwe, etc. And it says, until the lion tells his side of the story, the tale of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. So all that is to say until women are in a position mm -hmm. to decide to be writing history, a lot of time they will continue to be obliterated. But women have always participated and continue to participate in history. That, that is remarkable because that's, that's, that also brings up a very interesting point as well. We were talking to... Professor Vereen Shepherd from the University of the West Indies, the head of the CARICOM Reparations Research Center. And she also brought this up too, that there, within, with all the revolutions that happened um, in Jamaica and Barbados, there were a lot of Black women are never spoken about. They are forgot, they're, they're drifting in the, in the sea of history, never to be, only to be told, only to be known by um, certain levels tertiary level um, educators um, or students um, looking into the particular topic. So in, in regards to Haitian history, Haitian, black, black history is Haitian history. Yes. Uh, um, how, do we, how do we change this? How do, we, how do we teach the next generation? How do we ensure the next generation of um, Haitian Americans, Caribbean Americans, um, people within the diaspora know about these impactful women and men and women? I mean, it starts with um, some of the work you are doing, you know, to have a podcast and the very fact that we are having this conversation right now, give me hope. And um, I watch a beautiful video um, that a friend sent me and it says something along the line, while people were busy, change was happening. And it shows so many women leaders around the world from Barbados to Singapore, um, to Rwanda, um, et cetera. Women who are heads of state, women to, who play prominent role. And I think 
Uh, and as you were talking, I was thinking about one of my favorite Haitian singers, Carol Demesme. You should definitely Google her. And she's an amazing singer. And she has this song that pays tribute and homage to women. And she talks about the fact that these women were there doing um, Boakaima. And Boakaima is symbolically um, the time um, that slaves, uh, the enslaved people took uh, a vow to not be enslaved and started the revolt. And so she talks and name all the women who have, who were there, mm-hmm. who, um, who participated in Haiti's history. So we need more writers, whether poet, whether singers, whether rap, how, whatever medium um, to, to show them. Um, I have an artist friend and colleague um, I'm going to put his name down, um, who has been doing this work. And if you check out his website, um, Ulrich Jean-Pierre, he, he, he pays tribute to so many women. Many of his portraits are portraits of women mm-hmm. who have played crucial role in the history of Haiti. One woman that I think this is one of the um, few women that many Haitians know is Kathleen Flo. She was the woman who saw the flag because after Haiti got its independence, the flag used to be um, blue, blanc, rouge. So um, blue, um, blue, white, red, um, mm-hmm. because it was a French colony, like the French flag. And Dessaline, um, the then leader, symbolically whipped out the white to say that the whites, the French are out. And it was this woman, Catherine Flon, who saw the flag. You know, it's like creating Haiti, both symbolically, literally, and figuratively. This is powerful. This is amazing. And this is why, as parents, as educators, and what I mean by parents, whether it's your niece, your cousin, your friend's friend, and the Caribbean sense of like, you know, um, it takes a your, your nieces you were talking about earlier, we have a responsibility to, to tell them and even um, the type of books we buy them. As a mother of a 10-year-old son, I'm very conscious. I want my son to know about women. When we go to the library, I make him. He loves to read. I don't have to make him read, but he has to take biography. And yeah. he knows about Rosa Parks. He knows about Catherine Flon. So these are things that we can do at our level. What books do we choose for our children? Instead of buying them one more Barbie, even if it's black Barbie or brown Barbie that they don't need, buy them a book about women leaders. You know, look for books in the Caribbean. I have a, a close friend who um, she's, uh, her partner is from Barbados. And when she goes to Barbados, she brings me back books from Barbados. And then with history of, um, of um, the Beijing people, so that when my son knows about Barbados, my son can know that um, Barbados has a female prime minister. That's important. That's yeah. how we do it. We have to take responsibility. We cannot wait for the school. I cannot... Um, give uh, the responsibility totally to my son's school to teach about social justice. My God, I'm in Georgia. 
where many people think COVID doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's what we have to do. And, and for, for um, the younger generation who's in college, there are some electives, depending on your major. I know there are some classes you have to take, but you also have choices. Choose to learn about Black history. Choose mm-hmm. a course in English about Caribbean history. So all these are ways we're making choices, and we are the Google generation. There yeah. are so many ways to learn about our history. There, there, there's no excuse. Oh you're you're giving you're giving me everything right now. You're giving me everything. <laughs> Similar to, to how we um we we spoke about during our last interview. I have a question though, and this again, this brought up a topic. We had a very lengthy conversation about NGOs, um with with regards NGOs and um, Christian missionary groups um, that come to uh, Haiti and quote unquote help. So I know that a lot. It's it's quite interesting a lot of ngos also they focus on women they women empowerment and um bringing up women educating women teaching women within the village to um learn how to do xyz skills so they can do xyz um i'm assuming that there are these there are ngos like this in haiti um yeah the NGOs, we could have like a whole other podcast on just NGOs. Um, to be fair, there are some NGOs that are doing um, incredible work in Haiti. They are working with grassroots organizations. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a sign. Um, at some point, I was working with some local NGOs um, because I wanted to take a group of students to Haiti. It's been so unstable. The university will not allow me. When I was at University of Kansas, that didn't go through. But I had the opportunity to go to visit to see the incredible work some of them are doing. One in particular was working outside of Port-au-Prince in Laguna, um, in Ireland. Uh, um, so... It's uh, so I, I want to be fair and say that, but there are also, sadly, in my opinion, more NGOs that are doing harm than good. Okay. They go to Haiti, and it's not just in Haiti that happens in different places on the African continent, whether you're talking about West Africa, Burkina Faso, Senegal, the countries I know more about, Ghana, or um, Central Africa, etc. Uh, they don't learn about the culture. They don't learn about the language. Um, they just go as these new um, savior. To me, many of them are neo-colonizers. Uh, when I'm teaching, I, I challenge my students to think about why, are they, why do they have to go all the way to Haiti to help? I remember living in Kansas, and Kansas is very white, as I'm sure you know. And then, um, you know, being one, you can pick, we basically all knew each other, and then at times they will get us confused, you know, um, because we all look alike, of course. Um, And I used to tell students, instead of thinking you have to go all the way to Haiti to help, quote-unquote, those people, why not start right here in Lawrence where there are so many homeless in the streets? Why not go to, um, to Kansas City? So there is this notion 
for many people that they have to go far away to help and they don't start helping in their own backyard. And I have issues with that. And because you have a government in Haiti that's corrupted, that's unstable, they let anybody in, there isn't responsibility, you have an unethical government. So then this happened. I remember after the earthquake, I was in Haiti. Mm-hmm. Um, the earthquake happened in January and in June, um, I was in Haiti. I was so mad and furious. The number of NGOs and they had t-shirts in every language you can imagine from Chinese um, to, to French to Spanish to Portuguese, and some of them you have, Haiti, Jesus loves you. And it's like on the one end, I call it a Bible in one end, a bag of rice in another end. For me, after disaster, if you want to go help, go help. You should not be proselytizing. That's just unethical. Mm-hmm. And, 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 um, and I have a, a colleague, um, Professor Gina Tenayulis, she wrote, a, a very interesting book called Why Haiti Needs New Narrative. Uh, she's an anthropologist. She's also a performance artist. And it's to talk about, like, it's the same narrative and people don't go beyond that narrative. So you have these NGOs, missionaries, and other disaster tourists. They go to Haiti and to other places like that so that they can feel good about themselves. And I, I don't know if you, if you have heard about um, the context or the term Bobby Savior. Oh, you know? oh yes, I have. Oh. Okay. So it's, it's, it's that same mindset. Yeah. And, and well-meaning people going into these spaces, not questioning their own privilege, and they go with the idea that I'm going to teach those people um, to be uh, like me. Yeah. Because they think their way of life is always better. And I'm not one to romanticize. People need um, drinking water, basic sanitary. Um, uh, um, they need medical uh, uh, support. They need education. They need to be able nutrition. All these things matter. These are the most important things for me. Mm-hmm. You know, you want the person to... You want to to make the person feel like a person. You don't want to insult them and you know, their dignity matters. But so many of these NGOs, they go for like two weeks a year. Um, and it's not just the churches. There are so many other organizations, universities in the last couple of years have started coming to term with that. And we're having more conversation about so-called service learning. And I remember at the University of Kansas, participating and working with some students um, and uh, doing a program called First Do No Harm. And the idea was Mm -hmm. when you go into a space without doing your homework, without checking yourself, without going into there with the idea that there's an exchange and not just I'm rich, I'm going to give to you. There's nothing I can take from you because people are only seeing those spaces in terms of e- economics yeah. and, and, and nothing else and not human, not, there's no compassion. There's no empathy. There's no care. And this is the problem. 
And um, I often tell students after teaching, I say, uh, if you don't remember anything else in my class, remember this quote by Gandhi. There's enough for everyone's needs, but not enough for everyone's greed. Mm. Mm. And, and, and I, that speaks so true, because um, I think the entire region, in terms of when these, out, I don't want to say, uh, I don't know the politically correct term to say, outsiders. When these outsiders come to a region, they don't understand anything. And it, it even happens in Black communities in the United States or Native mm-hmm. American communities. Exactly. They come in, they see, oh, it's a depressed area. There's all these people of color. Uh, there is a huge need. There's, let's, let's go in. Let's, let's put some glitter on it. Let's do some, put some spirit fingers on it. And let's make it beautiful. You make it beautiful, exactly. but there's, no, there's nothing at the core. You don't understand the people. You don't understand the neighborhood. All of that. Oh. I completely get it. So let's let's flip the script a little bit. You, so you are you've studied you focused on language and literature, and you have a Creole phrase book. Can you teach me one term? Can, can what? How do I say mango? In oh, mango. 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 Okay. And we we talked about this before, but how many? What's your favorite mango? You know, it's, it's so hard. I love this mango. That's a tiny mango. It's called mango canel, like cinnamon mango. Mm-hmm. And I also call, like this man- mango called mango blanc, literally white mango. But it's because when you open it, it's like this, this huge, juicy mango. And it's, it's pretty big. There's mango feel. It's hard to choose one mango. I mean, you'll have to be there and like spend two months eating a different type every every week for like a month or so you say two months of eating mangoes that sounds like a yeah that i know like, it sounds like what my retirement what my goals <laughs> are to sit and eat mango and yeah and every day <laughs> um so what made you decide to create the the phrase book um you know what after the earthquake in haiti like many or the like many other um, people, I was really trying to come to term. Mm-hmm. How can I contribute as a scholar, as someone who um, used to teach Creole? In fact, when I was a graduate student at Tulane University in New Orleans, that was such a great moment for me teaching Haitian Creole because here I, I, I was, a language that I was not allowed to speak when I was growing up in school. I mean, at home, I always spoke Creole, but in school, we went allowed, we will get punishment literally to speak um, um, Creole in school at the time because it was seen as being disrespectful. Again, this colonial mindset, this um, hatred that the colonizers, they teach you to to hate yourself if you don't go and check out, get to know your own identity. um, it's, it's, uh, It's very problematic. And so I was teaching Creole. And I used to love teaching Creole. I mean, I love, love Creole. There are so many proverbs. Yeah. And Creole is such a, a language of nuance, a language of, um, there are so many ways. Uh, it's such a colorful language. And mm-hmm. it's also a very practical language that people don't know. Um, cre- the Creoles, and we have to say Creoles and the plural because there are different types of Creole. In St. Lucia, they, they speak a, a Creole in Martinique, Guadeloupe, Dominica, etc. 
and even in places such as Sierra Leone um, and the African continent. And so uh, I wanted to find a, a tangible way to help. And interestingly enough, after the first, um, probably by week after post-earthquake, week one, myself and another colleague, the colleague with whom I wrote the French, uh, the Haitian Creole Facebook, Joël Laguerre, we were being asked to translate documents uh, for, you're talking about UNICEF and other major organizations to help them with the recovery efforts. Mm -hmm. So here we were, a country that had been independent for like over 200 years, yet the language that is spoken by everyone in the country, you could not find documents when you were trying to distribute clean water, you were dealing with um, gender-based violence, all the logistical aspect of a you know, of relief for a disaster. So we literally created that book Yeah. Um, after, like within a couple of months. I remember we, there was a friend, um, we were talking about how do we do that? And Joelle and I, we had, we, we were already working on a, um, a Haitian Creole textbook for scholars who are teaching Haitian Creole because more and more, and I'm sure you in New York, they are over, I know Brooklyn College, um, they teach Haitian Creole and yeah. some other um, uh, colleges and universities. So we took materials we had, and when we approached McGraw Hill, that was a major publisher, they sent us an example. I think it was an Iraqi Facebook mm -hmm. um, after the, the, the war in, in Iraq. And then we used that as a model, and we turned literally a couple of months, we, we, we had that Facebook. It was our way as scholars to contribute uh, to the relief effort. And to the culture. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to the culture, uh, because I know uh, for, I think the, the struggle, well, the, the rejection of language is, is a constant thing across, across Black black cultures um to be honest um but the fact that you created the the phrase book um over for a storied uh, culture is amazing so in your if so when you are elected the new president of haiti <laughs> what do you what needs to change in haiti for haiti to be what it's supposed to be wow Again, that's the whole other podcast. <laughs> but um, to be short, I think there has to be an awareness. There has to be someone who deeply care about people and not just their pocket. Because for me, until you have that compassion, that care, that willingness to see that if I cannot eat you, or suffering, that we part of this ecosystem. What affects you affects me. Mm -hmm. And we haven't had that. You have people who come with these promises and they all want to get rich quick. And, and, and you don't have love for country. You know, you don't have people who said, you know what, I'm going to do this. I want my people to be educated. I want people to have access to basic things, 
healthcare, nutrition, people to have a living wage, to create jobs. It saddens me. I was in Haiti probably about um, two years ago, roughly. Mm -hmm. And to see the number of young people getting on planes to go to Chile, because there's been a lot of um, immigration to South America. And um, the, the new El Dorado. And it, it is so sad. At some point, it was Brazil. And, and it is because we don't know, like there is nothing for them. Mm-hmm. So like between like post, uh, um, post-earthquake from like 2013 roughly, uh, to 2016, you have so many um, Haitian, we're talking about over, I think, 30 or 40,000 Haitians who have gone um, to Chile. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and then before that, it was Brazil. At times, it's Mexico with the hope of coming to the U.S., if you don't invest in your youth, and Haiti is a very young, uh, is a country that has a very young population. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Uh, you have my vote. You have my vote. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I have one um, final question before we wrap up. Uh, um, what is your favorite tea? Oh, it's hard again, but I love, love the lemongrass. And I love ginger. You know, you, you can't go wrong with ginger tea. I mean, ginger is good for so many things. You have a stomach ache, ginger. Um, you want to feel uh, a little bit of warm or you think you're going to catch a cold, ginger. Mixed with a little cinnamon. I like to put ginger and, and cinnamon and sometimes I will add some mint. Okay. I am going to, so I've had mint and ginger. I am a... Um, a a connoisseur of ginger tea in my house. Oh, I'll send you my address so you can send me some, you know. <laughs> you know what? Growing, I, um, my grandparents, they lived in a rural area in Jamaica. And growing up, their ginger used to grow wild around us. I didn't know it was ginger at the time, but it was ginger. And I had ginger tea all the time. So it was ingrained in me from I was probably one years old. That ginger tea is it. <laughs> I, I'm going to try it with cinnamon. Yeah. I've tried that combination before. Yes, try it. It's, it's very good. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much, Professor, for coming back on the podcast. Um, you are our forever. We're, you should really just expect us to send you emails. <laughs> and the next time we're in Georgia, once the pandemic has hopefully gone away or significantly, significantly slowed down. Um, We will be, we will love to come and have tea with you in Georgia. I would love to make you all my cinnamon tea with, um, with brown sugar. I only use brown sugar and with, uh, with ginger and put some mint in there. We can try and uh, I will cook you some Haitian food. I'm not as good as my mom. If we plan it right, my mom will be here and you won't even want to go back home because my mother can cook. You know what? We'll bring dessert. We'll bring down a box of Haitian mangoes and that'll be hey, there, there you go. See mangoes, you know. 
<laughs> thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your time and thank you for being patient with me with oh, the no, technology. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Thank you for listening to another episode of Mango Tea Podcast and of course sipping tea with us. Like this episode, download and most importantly share. Follow us on all social media at Mango Tea Podcast and of course don't forget your mango.